This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dan Doriani as he talks about moral and spiritual qualifications for ordinands. Dan is a professor of biblical and systematic theology at Covenant Theological Seminary. This seminar was recorded at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen as Dan Doriani discusses exegetical and ethical insights on qualifications for ordinands. Uh, so in a way, this talk is a, um, a meditation about 15 years in the making. And there were three things going on simultaneously that got me started thinking about this. The first was that I was uh, a pastor and as a pastor, I was training elders and deacons on a regular basis. And therefore, I was spending, you know, substantial time in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. I'd like to do my exegesis, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 4. I like to study vice lists. Uh, we don't study them the way we should. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a great vice list. It, it um, basically points out that when pastors fall or leaders fall or Christians fail, it's often a matter of false loves, a love of self, love of money, love of other things other than, other than God. So this is in my mind, we trained leaders every year, every fall, um, on the one hand. On the other hand, I was uh, getting old enough to be drawn into, called into situations where pastors in our presbytery were faltering and failing. And I noticed that not one of them, not a single one of them, failed for lack of skill. They were failing for lack of character. And I also noticed that they weren't failing for lack of character in the, in the manner that I was told to expect. Uh, sexual sins were not visible in any of the first group that I talked to. Eventually, I found somebody, that is to say, I was involved with somebody who had, as a very minor part of their flaws, um, a couple of uh, events of maybe hitting on a woman other than his wife when he was mostly drunk. So the problem was alcohol, it seemed. In fact, when I looked at the problems, what I noticed was lying, 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 and more lying. And then there was verbal abuse, shouting, manipulating, threatening. Those were the, those were the main sins that I encountered. And... Um, and, and bullying, 
and demanding one's way, and there were money issues, and then there was laziness. A couple of the pastors got into trouble for plagiarizing sermons, and it simply became clear that they were not willing to put in the effort to prepare a sermon every week. And so they would borrow sermons, and then people eventually found it out, and then they lied about it. And when caught in the lies, they lied some more. You get the picture. The problem was lying. The problem was sins of speech. The problem was lack of effort, not sex. At the same time, I was also involved most of the years as the chairman of the committee of examination of new candidates for the ministry and um, transfer exams. And I eventually realized that I wasn't putting together what I was seeing with the pastors that I was working with and the exams. Specifically, I allowed uh, that old habit of tell us about your devotional life, tell us about your prayer life, tell us about your marriage, Thank you very much. We're done with the character portion of this exam. I allowed that, even though I knew better. I didn't ask people, I didn't ask committee members to inquire as to the truthfulness of the candidates, even though here's, here's my favorite, the, in a perverse way, not a happy way, but a perverse way. I was trying to work with a pastor who had lost his ministry, and I was one of the people supposed to work with him. And uh, three times in a row when we were supposed to meet, he canceled. And the first time his car wouldn't start, and the second time his toilet overflowed, and the third time his uh, dishwasher broke and there was water everywhere. And I said, you understand that the last two times we met, your excuse was water all over the floor. Do you expect me to believe this? And he didn't have an answer because it wasn't true. So that's, uh, that's where I come to the question. And what I would like to do is propose that the PCA spend a great deal more time in global assessment of the character of ministry candidates and people who are transferring in. That we um, not abandon at all the question of sexual morality or uh, devotional life and reading of scripture and how your marriage is doing, but that we add a great deal more to our typical exams. And what I'd like to do is uh, offer a bit of reasoning. So the first point is, I'm going to say first and second a lot, so if you're taking notes, I'm sorry. Just, you know, do your best. Um, I just have a lot of things I would like to say. Um, but I would do want to say that if you read the New Testament, you find that there is essentially an equal emphasis on orthodoxy and orthopraxy. They're, they're almost equal. If you look at 1 Timothy, it's maybe a bit more on character. 2 Timothy might be a bit more on functions or tasks, number one. Number two... If you, if you look specifically at the list of traits of an elder, 1 Timothy chapter 3, an overseer to be exact, uh, there are 12 traits. One of them has to do with function, able to teach. The other 11 have to do with character. You might say, um, you know, keeping children properly under respect, take care of your children. Maybe that's two functions. But essentially, it's maybe one or two functions, and then uh, character traits uh, dominate. And so the idea then is that to the harm of the church, we have de-emphasized issues such as misuse of money and um, work ethic and truthfulness and how you treat people when we disagree, and, and that has caused great harm in the church. What I would like to do then is ask a little bit why that is the case, and then look at what the Bible has to say. This is really my true one, two, three. Why is this the case? One, two, what does the Bible have to say? 
And three, I want to offer a few suggestions. So um, why is this the case? Why do we have a problem uh, with this matter? And I just want to, I want to see where we are. Can I just ask, how many of you know a pastor who lied grossly and got in trouble for lying? How many of you know a pastor? Okay, let's look around. That's most of you. Number one. Number two, how many of you know a pastor with uh, misuse of funds? This is a significant problem. Okay, that's not as many, but it, it's a large number. How many of you know a pastor who got in trouble for sexual sins? That's another large number, about the same as, as, as uh, sins of speech. Uh, how about persistent clashes within the church and church leaders? How many of you know? And that might be number one. So how you handle uh, disagreement might be, uh, just based on our hands, the biggest issue. So how do we get there? Um, how do we get to the point that we don't spend all that much time on examination and pursuit of character? And, and why is it that we spend so much time on um, examination of, of knowledge and not character? The short answer, I think, is uh, it's really important when we examine candidates and train candidates that they know what the Bible says, that they know what they believe, they actually believe it, they're not just saying it. And so, of course, when we examine candidates, we want to know if they know the Bible, know the doctrines, and actually adhere to them, naturally, we, we emphasize that. Number two, it's easier to get questions answered when you, when you say, uh, define justification, define sanctification. When was the first edition of the Institutes published? It's like yes or no. When you go to examinations of character, um, it doesn't work as neatly. What, what do you do when you disagree with someone is a great question, but what if, um, what if you barely know the person being examined? I'm not saying they're going to lie to you, but it might be hard to get a, a, a really deep answer from them. It might be hard if you push them. Do you, when you disagree with somebody, do you avoid them? Do you ghost them? Do you try to tell, um, present their position in terms they would think to be fair? It's, it's, uh, it's not easy. So honest answers are hard to come by when you don't know somebody. Second, uh, we probably expect the local church to look into character questions. We think, well, that's, that's somebody else's responsibility. And um, third, we also know that skill is what builds churches, right? I mean, you want to build a church, get an awesome preacher. You want to build a church, get an awesome youth program. And, and we, we tend, I'm not saying this accusingly, I'm just saying as an American among Americans, we tend to emphasize skill and results and capacities, and so perhaps we don't spend the time we should on character matters. All right, so what does the Bible say? I'm going to do a lightning quick survey of the Bible. You probably know most of this. Forgive me. I just think it's important to get the biblical data out. So the first thing I notice when I look for questions of character is that prophet, priest, and king does not get as much attention as we might expect for the question of character. Uh, I don't know that there's a big list of the moral traits, the character traits of a prophet. Uh, there are certain, uh, certainly things that are expected, but it's not, it's not the emphasis of any, of any uh, great importance. Kings are supposed to be godly men. Deuteronomy 17 says kings must not accumulate wealth or wives. They shouldn't be in it for themselves, therefore. They should read God's law. They should follow God's law. Um, they should rule according to precepts. They should not exalt themselves. And actually, kings are held to a higher standard. If you know Proverbs 31, uh, one of the passages that we might meditate on, uh, which says, uh, it is not for kings to drink wine, 
It is not for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. I know that some of us think it's a marvelous thing to exercise our freedom to imbibe the fruit of the vine. And uh, I'm just going to say, you know, we're supposed to be more, more careful than anybody else. We're supposed to make sure we don't get drunk. We're supposed to make sure we don't get close to being drunk because we're always ready to go. And so that's, that's a higher standard for kings, and I think it applies to pastors as well. If you look at Jesus, what did he look for first when he called disciples? The answer is character, Sermon on the Mount. Maybe the core of that is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The thing we probably should seek the most in a pastor is a love of righteousness, a desire to be filled with the righteousness imputed and also the righteousness pursued by the grace of the Holy Spirit. If you look at the book of Acts, there is uh, no doubt some emphasis on uh, those who are able to fulfill the task uh, when when Jesus ascends and they're choosing another apostle. Uh, It's someone who is an eyewitness, right? An eye and ear witness, so they can testify properly. It's functional. Uh, On the other hand, when you get to the deacons, uh, there's an emphasis in the deacons on character. What is a deacon supposed to be? Somebody who is full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So those are character traits, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, full of the Holy Spirit, we know from the book of Galatians, means traits like love, joy, peace, patience, and the rest of the list. And then we get to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And 1 Timothy 3 does not look like Galatians 5 at first, but I want to propose that Galatians 5 and 1 Timothy 3 actually have a connection in that, in that the traits mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 are manifestations, public manifestations, of the, of the fruit of the Spirit. So let's just, let's just read the familiar first three verses of 1 Timothy 3. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but, sorry, um, and not a lover of money. So we notice, of course, right away, that there is a great emphasis on character. Notice the language specifically, if anyone aspires or desires or longs for the office of overseer, which then is an emphasis on the task, right? Two terms, right? Presbyteros, episcopes. This is, this is the word that focuses more on the task. So we expect a description of the tasks, but we don't get a description of the task. What we get is primarily a description of the character and specifically sins that are to be avoided and positive traits. So not violent, not quarrelsome, husband of one wife, above reproach, um, and we might add uh, whatever that means. But it says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task, and then it describes character, as if to say the number one task of an overseer is to be a man of character. The first job in parlance is you got to be the man, not do the job, you got to be the man. A man with traits like husband of one wife. More on that in a moment. So if you look at Galatians 5 and compare it to 1 Timothy chapter 3, 
we say fruit of the Spirit is love, and elders, verses 4 and 5, overseers, take care of their family and the church. Epimelemi, for those of you who care, it's a word used only twice in the New Testament. The other time is the good Samaritan, take care of the wounds of the man who's beaten up. So concrete acts of love. So fruit of the Spirit is love, and an elder shows love. And the fruit of the Spirit is peace, and elders are not quarrelsome or violent. So that's the fruit of the Spirit, peace manifested. And um, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. And what's an elder described as over in first uh, chapter of Titus? Not quick-tempered. And, of course, patience aids teaching, as we all know. Gentleness. Elders are called gentle and temperate in this passage and in other passages as well. So the goal, then, is to experience the Holy Spirit and then to manifest the fruit of the Holy Spirit and that's how we recognize someone who's qualified to be an overseer. Uh, this may or may not feel germane to what we're talking about today, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Uh, this passage also has a little bit of an interest in what I would call proper pagan virtues of the day, uh, by which I mean that Greco-Roman culture certainly was not aligned very well with biblical morality, and uh, their standards were often appalling, but they weren't always appalling. And Greco-Roman uh, literature prized courage and justice and wisdom and temperance and generosity, and at least the last two are, are here in this list. Uh, temperance or self-control, same word, um, was praised in Greco-Roman culture, and it's praised here in our passage. And of course, uh, generosity is not mentioned in that term, but what word is there? hospitality, which is uh, welcoming people who are not part of your family into your home, feeding them, giving them a place to stay, and so on. So we might say then that Paul wants uh, elders to meet the valid pagan standards of the day. Now, most pagan standards aren't valid, but some are. And we should meet the valid pagan standards of the day. Today, of course, our culture is uh, often far from our idea of what righteousness is when they consider virtue, but our culture does believe that honesty and um, we could make a list, I suppose, uh, marital fidelity, financial integrity, generosity, hard work are, are traits admired in our society, which we might praise as well. Uh, notice, too, that this list is public. I don't know if I want to ask how many of you learned Greek and Hebrew and then forgot it. And the reason why we can forget it is partly because we're busy and maybe we didn't like it all that much and learning foreign language is difficult, blah, blah, blah. But it's also because we're not held accountable every day. We're not re-examined in our Greek and Hebrew every year. But the list of traits of an overseer is published in a letter the entire church can read, which means Everybody knows what the character of an elder is supposed to be like, and everybody can call an elder or the body of elders or pastors to account for the question, are you like this picture we have here? Everybody can see it. So um, character matters are not like learning Greek and Hebrew or studying a church history exam you can cram for the final. It's a lifelong task. The sad truth is, that pastors sometimes act as if it is something like cramming for exam. And the saddest thing I've noticed is that people who start really well don't always finish well. 
pastors who are godly and self-sacrificial and hardworking wear out. And the pastors who plagiarized weren't plagiarizing on day one. But by year 25, they were. And when they were caught, they were lying about it. That is to say, they didn't keep on pursuing godly character. So it's a public list. It's also public um, in, with regard to the comments on marriage. Paul says an elder overseer is the husband of one wife. If we're married, people can see how we conduct ourselves in our marriage. If we have children, people can probably tell, especially if they're young-ish in the home or maybe you know high school, college. Certainly if they're small, they can tell if our children are uh, following us, heeding us in a respectful manner. Well, let's look at a couple of those things just in a, in a touch more detail. What does it mean when Paul says an elder must be the husband of one wife? For those of you who have your Greek nearby, that is mias gunaikos andra, which means something like a one-woman man. So when we ask the question, I know most of you know this, but if you ask the question, does this require elders to be married? Does this require us to ban any elder who's been divorced and remarried, no matter the cause of their divorce, uh, from uh, a position of leadership? Or, or maybe it used to be argued, this is just forbidding polygamy, which actually was a problem in the ancient world. What's, what's Paul saying when he says, an elder must be a husband of one wife or a one-woman man? The best way to answer this is to look for parallel clauses in other places and blessedly, we have over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, um, a very similar passage in which we hear about the widow who is to be enrolled. I know your eyes are glazing over, but it's important. <laughs> a widow who is to be enrolled is a henos andras gune, which is a one-man woman. And at last, country music can help us <laughs> in the task of interpreting the Bible. And what it's saying is something like this. Paul is describing a one-man woman in 1 Timothy 5.9, a one-woman man, and the song goes, I was a one-man woman, but he was a two-time man. Right? In other words, you want to be, this, the woman in this story, I was a one-man woman, is devoted to one man, but he was not devoted to me. So a one Man, woman, and by the way, it gets really hard to keep saying this the right way. Um, a one-man woman is a faithful wife, and by the same token, a one-woman man is a faithful husband. That's what it's saying. Are you a good, kind, loving, gracious, generous, sacrificial husband? That's the question. Now, of course, some people say, well, then, then uh, this is why, and I, I know that I have um, in, in our room a man who styles himself the only lead pastor who, in the PCA who is single. Um, <clears throat> and I love him dearly, but I'm not going to identify him by name. And of course, we have in the room maybe people looking to ordination who aren't married and aren't sure they ever will be. So are they ruled out because they can't be, say it with me, they can't be one woman man, right? And the answer, of course, is no. We don't want to say this mandates marriage for the simplest of all reasons, and that is, if we mandated marriage for leadership, we would exclude Jesus and Paul from qualifications. Just as a general principle, you don't want to lay down rules that Jesus doesn't satisfy. <laughs> it's a very bad theological move. And you also don't want to come out with a position that leaves you concluding that Paul is defective in some way. 
I mean, he was a sinner, of course. Uh, we also, of course, recognize that in Matthew chapter 19, some, some are munichs of, of the kingdom, and Jesus presents singleness as a viable option for the apostles, for goodness sake. So we, we can't say that you have to be married to be a, um, an overseer, and so you have to look for some other way to detect whether a person who's single shows the kind of dedication to relationships that we want to see, and probably the best way to, to do that is to inquire after their other family relationships and their friendships, which is what I would commend. Then, of course, we have an overseer, verses 4 and 5, must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, there are two verbs here. I'm going to go technical again for a minute. You didn't know this was going to be a little bit of Greek exercise, did you? Some of you suspected it would happen if you, if you had me in class. So uh, two words here, uh, manage and take care, and, and they're a lovely team. Proiste means to stand over, to organize, um, and so that's, that's sort of leading from above. And then the second word, which I mentioned earlier, is take care, which is epimolatomai, which is uh, leading, taking care from below. That is, uh, you, you make sure your kids aren't in seven activities and so destroy the family life, and you say, you know, something like uh, pick an activity, pick a sport, pick drama, every, every um, music, every season of the year, you, you all get one, not two or three or four. And then, of course, it also includes things like when your little child throws up and is crying in bed, you go take care of your little child who's, as we said in our house, swimming in vomit. And, and, and that's what it takes to be a good leader. Manage and take care from the top and from below. And then, of course, it says, depending on your translation, that an elder um, manages his own household, and it, and it gets translated different, different ways. Uh, it could be translated with dignity, which then would focus on the leader, the dad. The dad is dignified, meaning he doesn't shout, he doesn't threaten. Threatening is forbidden in Scripture, you know. He doesn't threaten his children, shout at his children, belittle his children, um, he sacrifices, he shows affection, he shows self-control. The other possibility, again, just a, it's not quite clear how to translate, is that um, the children are showing respect. So either the elder shows dignity or the children show respect, in which case they've decided that dad is respectable and we love him, we obey him, not with rolling of the eyes, but with, um, with good cheer. I'm not here to condemn people whose children roll their eyes. It seems to be a genetic defect from the ages of 12 to 14. <laughs> the question is, are they rolling their eyes when they're seven and when they're 18? That's, that's the real question. In other words, leaders lead with gentle authority, and they care. And when you care for a child, it demonstrates some capacity to care for the church, um, which, of course, is like a family in a number of very, very important ways. Leading from above... And leading gently, of course, is like our Lord, who led from above and executed the plan of redemption, but also led from below by washing his disciples' feet, by humbling himself, by living as a servant, by giving his life on the cross. So this is why we lead from below, because Jesus led from below, and we lead from above, because Jesus also led from above. Now, that's 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 4 also has a similar ring to it. It stresses 
um, teaching maybe a little bit more, and then leadership, holiness, and so forth. Let's just look at 1 Timothy 4, 12 to 16. I didn't let you turn to 1 Timothy 3 because I, I, I assume that you all have half memorized 1 Timothy 3, but you might not have half memorized 1 Timothy 4. So here it is, verses 12 and following. No one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, gloss, that's an ability, that's a capacity, in conduct, that's character, in love, faith, and purity, that's character, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, character, maybe character required to prepare, but that's a skill, um, exhortation and teaching, those are skills or abilities, keep a close watch on yourself, that's character, and on your teaching, that's ability. So we have really close to a 50-50 blend of character traits and skills. And then, of course, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 to 25 talks about correcting those who err and doing so gently, which implies also, again, character and ability. You have to have ability, knowledge, to persuade people, but you also have to have character to be kind. And it says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting opponents with gentleness. So that's, again, this, this blend of character and teaching in the passage. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 to 8. You should be able to preach in season and out of season. Who's here has had to give a sermon with less than 10 minutes notice? All right. Pastor got in a car accident, pastor was sick, something happened, right? Yeah. How do, you, how, do you, how do you prepare to preach with 10 minutes notice? How can you do that? Well, well you pray, that's good. I actually wasn't looking for help. That was a rhetorical question. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate the engagement. Thank you. Um, and my take is that you are ready to preach a sermon on 10 minutes notice. And I've, I'm, for whatever reason, I've had to do it five times. Um, maybe I'm one of those, you know, I'm like those, those uh, crime investigators. When, when you're in their show, just leave. Someone's going to die in the next seven minutes. Just get out of there. So maybe I'm the equivalent of that. Anyway, I've had to preach on very, very short notice a number of times. And the way to do it is, is only by soaking yourself in Scripture. You can't have something to say on the spur of the moment if you haven't been reading the Bible and studying the Bible. And, you know, I just read this yesterday. I was just working this last week. I'm ready to go. It's a character issue. It's a character issue. To be, of course, you're, you should be ready in season, ukairos, it says, when everything is ready, when you knew for months you were going to be speaking to a group. But what about when you, when you cannot possibly know? And the answer is you've got to be steeped in the word. You've got to be meditating on it. And you have to be ready to share what you know. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, 5 to 7, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then and Paul, in, in what can only be called poetic language, says, this is my translation, The good fight I fought, the race I finished, the faith I kept. All perfect tense verbs. As I prepare to die, he says, I'm sorry, I'm gonna, i got to tell you, Timothy, I did it. I ran till I was done running. I fought till I was done fighting. I'm ready to die. I was faithful to the end. That's what we want to do. We want to raise pastors who are faithful to the end. 
not faithful at the start. Not pastors who can tell you when Calvin's first institutes were written. I'm not against knowing that. It's just not very important. Um, so what can we do about it? I'm just going to say I was recently, um, I recently spoke at Gospel Coalition on a panel on uh, bully pulpit, it was called. It was about pastors who are bullies. And, and the most interesting thing about it, uh, Michael Kruger, well-known, wonderful man, RTS pass, uh, professor, uh, was the head, and John Yates, another wonderful man, and I were doing it together. And what was curious is we'd all seen the same things when we got together to talk, but as I drove to give the talk, one of my friends called me up and said, hey, Dan, pray for me. We've got to get rid of our pastor because he's been here about 12 months, and it's very clear that he lied on his resume. He's misled people about his theology. He shouts and curses at people in the, in the church building. He misuses money, and he systematically drives off everybody who could call him to account. Everybody over the age of 50 who had any leadership position has been driven off. We had to call Presbyterian. That's on the way to a talk about bullies. So, um, it's good to notice strengths. Leaders are all talent scouts. All leaders are talent scouts. You're always looking for the next generation, rightly so. But we need to look for more than talent. We look, we look to theological knowledge, to love of God's word, and we look to godliness and proven character. I'll say it a different way. For those of you who say, oh, well, we don't have time. You know, theological training is so important. We don't have time to look into character. Spending time on the character of a pastor is like taking your wife out on a date or going for long walks with your wife. It's preventative maintenance if it's nothing else. If you don't spend time with your wife happily going for a walk or going on a date, you will spend time unhappily with your wife explaining why you've been neglecting her for the last three weeks. You will give your time to your wife. We will give our time to pastors. Let's give our time to pastors to help them grow in character instead of solving the problems that emerged because we weren't paying attention. So what do we do? I propose, first of all, that in our internships, in our seminaries, we grant godliness and character as much attention as we grant to gifts and work ethic. That we teach and review content and we teach and review character and we, we figure out the way to do it. So uh, I just have a few suggestions. We might talk to these men. These are just random suggestions almost. When you're talking to somebody about character, you might ask them a question like, whom do you admire and why? Listen to the answer they give. What traits are they seeking? When my children were young, I have three daughters, and they were all in their youth, I would say, uh, good looking and lively and the kind of girl that attracts boys. And, and so men would, young men would come to our house. And while my daughter got ready, I would, I would um, engage them in terrifying conversations. <laughs> I would ask them questions like, what kind of music do you listen to? <gasps> Sigh of relief. <sighs> yes, I can answer that one. And if you could have any superpower, what would it be? I'd like to fly. How fast? Like the speed of a midge, speed of a gnat? How high? Mosquitoes and gnats, you know, five feet, seven feet, what's your goal? Oh, I'd like to fly, 
I don't know what the speed of light. Oh, so when you land, you'd like to destroy the known universe. <laughs> because that's what some physicists think would happen if you landed at the speed of life, light. Um, maybe just New York City would disappear. And then, and then, of course, the only really good question I asked them was, whom do you admire? Your dad? Your coach? Your grandfather? And why do you admire them? And I got some pretty good answers to people I'd only known for 10 minutes. I'll suggest that question. Whom do you admire and why? What traits do you emulate? Who's your hero? Where are you trying to grow? Why are you trying to grow there? That's one. Two, when did you last welcome a stranger into your life? Tell me about it. Tell me about the last five times you welcomed a stranger into your life. Don't tell me your apartment's too small. Did you take them to coffee? Did you go play basketball with them? What'd you do? Tell me about the openness you have towards strangers. If you have children, how do you pursue their discipline in the home? How do you talk about it? How do you execute it? What do you do when you get too angry at your own children? What do you do when you disagree sharply with somebody? Do you pursue them? Do you ghost them? Do you stop communicating with them? Do you state the problem in terms they would agree to be fair? Here's another one. Are you content with your wages? Do you know if you ask the average American how much money they need, what the answer is? 20% more. Ask somebody who's making 30,000 a year, they'll say on average 36. Ask somebody who's making 200, they'll say on average 240. Are you content with your wages? You know, there are pastors who leave the ministry every year because they don't make enough money. They do something else. So these are some questions. The objection people offer is, well, you know, it just won't work. It's too hard. We don't have the mechanisms. And may I say plainly, it won't work is an answer that won't wash. You don't answer principled questions with pragmatic observations. If it's the right thing to do, then we do it. And if it's hard, we figure out a way to do what's hard. We cannot say it won't work. We can say it hasn't worked, but we can't say it won't work. If it's right to pursue character, then let's pursue character. Let's help people find their way to godliness, to maturity, and not just as a start, but lifelong, so that you know they can say, and we can all say, uh, the good fight I fought, the race I finished, the faith I kept. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.